Hey there listeners, welcome to Horror Movie Club, the show where two dudes who aren't quite nerds but not quite noobs choose a horror movie each week to rate and review. I'm Oshfin, I'm on the phone with Brian, and on this week's episode we're going to be reviewing the 2009 horror film Drag Me to Hell, written by Sam Raimi and Ivan Raimi, and directed by Sam Raimi, and starring Allison Lohman, Justin Long, Lorna Raver, and Dilip Rao. In this film, a loan officer has a demonic curse placed on her after refusing to extend a customer's delinquent mortgage payments. If you're new to this show, Brian and I are going to have a spoiler-free discussion up front on the background of the film, then we'll take a quick break and dive into the plot, some of the spoilers, and hit our review. Brian, I don't think I'd seen this one in maybe 10 years or so. Maybe I saw it like once outside of theaters. Uh, how about you? Had you seen this one pretty recently? Uh, I think I'd seen it a little bit more recently. Yeah, I saw it in the theater in 2009, and then I watched it once since then. I can't remember when, but it had been a few years for sure. I'd say at least five years. Sure. You know, I've picked up on a few people who are actually revisiting this film this year, surprisingly. Um, I, mean, I, I don't know why, but it seems to be making a bit of a comeback. Uh, have you been picking up on uh, it in the in the press or anything, or more people talking about it lately? Interesting. No, other than somebody on our Discord server said that another podcast they listened to was covering it this week as well. So, yeah, maybe it, maybe it's in the in the news or something. I don't know why. Yeah, I know. It's so strange. But uh, here we are, like, what, 10, 11, 12 years later talking about this film. You know, it could, could be because Sam Raimi's set to—he directed uh, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, right? Oh, right. Yep. Or is directing. And I don't know when that's supposed to come out, but I'm sure that might have people going back through his work. Sure. Yeah, yeah, that could be it. I, I think that's supposed to come out in the next year. Uh, so, yeah, that might be putting him in the headlines again. Right. Um, are you a big Sam Raimi fan? You know, sure. I, I hesitate to call myself a big Sam Raimi fan, but I love The Evil Dead. Mm-hmm. I think Evil Dead 2 is good. I think Army of Darkness is a lot of fun. And I liked the Spider-Man trilogy for the most part. Yeah, man, that Spider-Man trilogy, it was a game changer. It's such a powerful film, I feel like, for our generation and our age group. I think a lot of us probably saw that one while we were in high school or about to go to college or something, right? Yeah, I mean, it almost seems like that was the beginning of the big, spectacular superhero movie for in this millennium, you know? Oh, totally. Yep. Like that. I mean, they were, there were some X-Men movies around that time period, but Spider-Man was big. Yeah, it really was. And I think you're right. It did kind of kick off this whole superhero environment that we're in now. Um, I feel like the 90s superhero films were a lot darker and like not as relatable or fun. And then suddenly that Spider-Man trilogy came along. And I remember that first one. It was just so fun. And there's like a part of it that was relatable, too. So it was kind of a game changer. I think so. I think so. I think it was the beginning of that Marvel formula. They hadn't quite gotten there, but it was kind of a precursor to it. Right. No, it really set the stage. And uh, it's really interesting because I've always considered Sam Raimi this like horror director with like his association with the evil dead. Um, But really, like when you look at his filmography as a director, um, he doesn't, a lot of his films don't really fall into that horror genre. It's a lot of like things like Spider-Man. He did Darkman. He's doing this Doctor Strange thing. So yeah, would you say uh, a lot of his directorial work is uh, non-horror? Yeah, I mean, as far as horror goes, you got the Evil Dead trilogy, and plenty of people will argue that Army of Darkness isn't even horror anymore. Um, And you got Drag Me to Hell, and I don't think there's too much else in there that's horror, and there might be a couple that I'm not aware of that were kind of horror. I mean, Dark Man, I think, was a dark superhero movie, but not a horror movie. Sure. And he did The Quick and the Dead, A Simple Plan, The Great and Powerful Oz. Mm-hmm. Pardon me, Oz the Great and Powerful in 2013. Oh. But yeah, it's not, he's so very much associated with the horror genre. But I think part of that is that he produced a lot of horror movies. He founded a production company called Ghost House Pictures in 2002 with a guy named Robert Tapert. And they produced The Grudge, The Grudge sequels 30 days of night evil dead 2013 the poltergeist remake don't breathe don't breathe too so he's still very much in the horror scene and also ash vs. evil dead that tv show from 2015 to 2018 kind of extended his his name into the horror 
universe again. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think talking through all that, sure. It's fair to to put associate him pretty healthily with horror. Right, yeah. I mean, definitely on the production side alone, like those are some pretty big titles for the past few uh, years. Uh, Have you seen Ash vs. the Evil Dead? As much as I love the Evil Dead, I have not seen a single episode of that show, unfortunately. Have you? Yeah, I've seen a few episodes, and uh, I, I enjoyed it. I feel like even with his horror work and with Drag Me to Hell, uh, he's kind of got his own brand and unique style where like, you know you're watching a Sam Raimi film. Uh, I feel like with Spider-Man 1 and 3, and especially 3, kind of highlights this like unique, dark sense of humor that he's got uh, to him. Uh, have you picked up on, on that and like that uniqueness uh, about his style of humor? Very much so. It's There's a lot of slapstick and splatstick comedy, but mm-hmm. even on top of that, there is a weird, quirky comedy that's a bit unusual. It kind of breaks some of the rules of cinema. Like, it's almost fourth wall breaking, but not quite. It's kind of just like playful with the viewer right right it's like super self-aware of itself uh, I, don't, I don't know if i'd call it campy or slocky i don't know would you call it one of those hmm possibly slightly campy but not quite it's, it's almost hard to put your finger on what exactly it is but you know it when you see it right yeah it's kind of like this wink to the camera or something yeah yeah <laughs> like and not explicit wink but yeah it's it's getting into that fourth wall breaking territory without right. quite doing it. Right, exactly. And, you know, that really threw me for a loop with uh, Spider-Man 3. And, you know, the first time I saw it, I definitely wasn't a fan. But then I rewatched it with one of our friends, uh, Joseph, and I suddenly got it and it, like, killed me. Yeah, I mean, anything with Joseph is just going to be hilarious. <laughs> he <laughs> just is. laughs at it regardless of whether it's funny or not. And so you're like, oh, something must be funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like this light bulb really clicked on for me. And I, I was like, ah, oh, this is Sam Raimi's uh, sense of humor. I think I finally get it now. So it was, it was a lot of fun. I remembered liking it fine, but not thinking it was as good as the others. And then having years go by and realizing that everyone trashed it. And I was like, I guess right. it wasn't that great, but I didn't think God, this is garbage as it was happening. Yeah, I, th- I think it's one of those movies that like doesn't take itself very seriously and uh, kind of leans into itself. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely a, a unique uh, piece of film and very much Sam Raimi's uh, style of humor. I don't think I was a super discerning viewer in 2007. Oh, yeah. I think yeah. that's when that came out. Sure, yeah. young inspector. Spider-Man came out in 2002, Spider-Man 2 in 2004, and Spider-Man 3 in, ni- in 2007. Right, right. Um, yeah, and then uh, another interesting fact is uh, his brother, who's a co-writer here, he's actually a doctor in Michigan. I don't know, did, did, did you read up on that? Yeah, I, I saw that. <laughs> it was like, Sam's the director and producer, Ted is an actor, and Ivan is a writer and a physician. <laughs> so what? Right. I know. It's so Good crazy. for him. Yeah, I know. I really want to go see that doctor. He sounds uh, hilarious. Uh, and he also co-wrote Spider-Man 3 and Army of Darkness. In uh, Army of Darkness, I feel like it's another one like Spider-Man 3 where I'm not sure if I was fully on board with the humor the the first time I saw it. Uh, do you like usually crack up when you're watching that one? I don't crack up. It's not a movie that makes me LOL that much, but I watch a good chunk of it with a slight smile on my face. Oh, but it's okay. been a few years. I wouldn't mind. We should probably tackle Evil Dead 2 in Army of Darkness. Yeah, yeah, we should eventually. Yeah. Um, I do feel like Army of Darkness and Spider-Man 3 might have had a similar vibe of like that silliness, but it'll be interesting to hear your thoughts on whether that kind of drags into, drag me to hell or not. Yeah. Uh, maybe we'll talk about it more, but perhaps a bit more restrained than than either of those. Sure. Um, Alison Lohman is the lead here. I'm not sure I recognize her from any of her other work. Was she on your radar or someone you recognized at all? No, she was not on my radar. I dug a little bit into her, her filmography and didn't really have time to take notes on that, but she's since retired from acting, not too oh. long after this film, I believe. Interesting. Yeah, I think some of the other big ones were Matchstick Men, Big Fish, Beowulf. Oh, yeah. Yep, Big Fish. Right, yeah, but I, I can't really place her in those, and um, I also haven't seen them in years. Same, same. Right. Uh, your boy from Tusk, Justin Long, is back. I'm sure you're excited to see him again. <laughs> that rat bastard. <laughs> I know. He set the bar pretty high for you after Tusk, right? I. The thing is, I kind of like Justin Long. I just hated Tusk. Yeah, I, I like him too. I, I think he's pretty funny and has a good uh, presence. 
Yeah, I was prepared to not like him in this, but he ends up being pretty likable. He does, he does. I can't tell if his character is supposed to be likable or more of a douchebag, but um, I'm interested to hear your thoughts uh, throughout the discussion, uh, what, what your thoughts were on that character. Sure. Were there any other actors or actresses you recognize in this film? No, no, not really. And, oh, you know what, who I did recognize vaguely but couldn't put my finger on it? Justin Long's character is named Clay, and Clay's mom is played by an actress named Molly Cheek, and she is Jim's mom from American Pie. Oh, no kidding, really? So she was vaguely familiar to me, and I couldn't figure out why, and I'm pretty sure that's it. Nice, nice. Wow, good eye, good catch, man. Um, she's not the one that catches the main guy with the pie, right? That's Eugene Levy? Yeah, that's the dad. Okay, Correct. yeah, right. Um, yeah, good catch. Uh, Success-wise... I'd say this one was a modest box office success, uh, $90 million on a budget of $30 million, so about a three times return. Uh, what, do you, what do you think, a big success? Yeah, I mean, that's supposedly the rule of thumb to make a profit. I imagine they didn't advertise this a whole bunch, and $90 million in 2009, a pretty good number. So yeah. I'd, ca- I'd call it a success. Sure, yeah, that's something. Um, and then from a critical perspective, it's got a 92% Rotten Tomatoes, so pretty highly regarded, and I think it's like one of the best horror movies of the 2000s. Yeah, yeah, I think it was on uh, Bloody Disgusting's top, uh, I don't know if it was like a top 25 list of the decade or something like that, but sure. yeah, it is highly regarded and among critics, at least for sure, and I was surprised it only had a 62 user rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, wow, that is kind of shocking. Who knows? Yeah, I, th- I thought it would have uh, appealed to both audiences uh, equally. That's that's crazy. It's interesting. On Rotten Tomatoes, most of the critical reviews come from the time that the movie came out, but a lot of the user reviews are just peppered throughout the time, you know, ever since the release. So sure. maybe it doesn't age as well for people seeing it for the first time in this day and age. I don't know. Yeah, that's a good point. And uh, yeah, very interesting because, yeah, if you think of it as a graph, uh, critic reviews are all going to be right around the release date, so then you're going to have more volume of audience reviews throughout the years, so that could totally have an impact yeah, on Yeah, I think the decline would be steeper for critics. It would be a more gradual decline for users, and then level out. <laughs> Great. <laughs> cool. Nerd stuff. Well, uh, speaking of graphs and slopes and whatever, uh, this movie hits on one of my favorite topics of the time, the subprime mortgage crisis. Are you a fan of this? Holy shit, I didn't even think about the fact that this took place like a year after the financial crisis right or that it was released a year after the financial crisis and it had to do with the mortgage wow yeah am yeah. i a fan of the subprime mortgage crisis <laughs> yeah are you i think it's a fascinating point in history and i remember reading up a lot about it back in the day i think i read a book about it even or at least got about halfway through a book about it hmm. um it was interesting because it was complicated it was, yeah. I kind of put it up there as like one of the biggest supernatural events of the last 20 years, maybe, uh, where like you can't explain it. No <laughs> one can really properly explain it. Everyone thinks they have a version of it, but uh, it's always different. But what are the chances, though? They wrote this script 10 years before this movie came out, and then they release it the year after the mortgage crisis hits and people are getting pushed out of the house. So suddenly you have this story that's very uh, in with the times. Right. It's kind of a happy coincidence. Yeah. Oh, man. Sorry. I was just like <laughs> closed my eyes and like re-examined the movie through that <laughs> lens. And I, I think I might like it a little bit better now. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't tell if it was purposeful or not. Uh, like, was this just a coincidence or were they look, reading the headlines and thinking this might be a good time to release the story that they wrote 10 years ago? Uh, I, I couldn't find any like mention of it in the development process, but did I you didn't f- see anything speaking to that either. And I mm. don't remember seeing exactly when this was filmed, but considering how long it takes to get a movie from pre-production into post and then releasing it, I'm guessing they didn't. This was like up and running as a project before the financial crisis right. really happened or before people really totally understood what caused it. Yeah, totally. I, I I agree. I think it was just a really interesting coincidence. Um, but yeah, so so fascinating. Um, you got any other background you want to go over? Um, gosh, sorry, man. You really you really knocked me off my feet with that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm always looking for ways to plug that into a movie. So it's good to have that. Yeah, that's great. I'm glad you caught that. Um, 
other background info, Raimi offered this to Edgar Wright to direct, but he was busy with Hot Fuzz. Yeah, I couldn't believe that, that it would have been like such a different movie. Yeah. Uh, Elliot Page, who was then Ellen Page, was originally cast as Christine, but dropped out due to scheduling issues, which, hard to imagine uh, Elliot Page in this role. Yeah, because I think at that point, uh, Elliot Page had only done, like, Juno, right? Like, I, I don't think uh, he was that big, right? Yeah, I just, like, couldn't imagine... Base, yeah, other roles were a bit more, like, snarky and clever, and Christine is such a kind of doe-eyed character in this, it's mm-hmm. hard to imagine. She really is, yeah. Elliot Page in this role, so yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting stuff. Yeah, there was also talk about Bruce Campbell. Did you did you read that Sam Raimi was trying to get him into the film? No, I missed that. Yeah, I wasn't sure what character he would have been, but the, somewhere on IMDb there's a mention that Raimi approached him, but he was busy with some other TV show. Okay. Yeah, I gotcha. Sure what that was about. Uh, this was also scored by our boy Christopher Young, who we've brought up a few times. He scored Hellraiser. Species, Urban Legends, Sinister, The Empty Man, Tales from the Hood, uh, and Spider-Man 3. Mm. And he's got some diverse scores, it seems, right? If you think back, it's hard to remember what all those movies sounded like, but jumping from like Hellraiser to Sinister to Tales from the Hood to this, it, he's a diverse uh, diverse dude. He really is. Like, yeah, I wouldn't hear those scores and think it's the same person at all. They're like so different. Right, yeah. Um. This was edited by Bob Murawski, who worked previously as an editor for Raimi on Army of Darkness and the entire Spider-Man trilogy, and he had just edited The Hurt Locker the year before, for which he won an Oscar. Oh, wow. Hurt Locker, that's a big one. Yeah. I know Sam Raimi was focused on keeping this one PG-13, so did this guy have uh, a lot of work cut out for him to edit this down to that or not so much? I think from the get-go they knew they wanted to do PG-13, so I imagine there wasn't a whole lot in editing. I'm sure that's a minor part of it, but I think if if everything you're putting in front of the camera is PG-13, then the editor doesn't have too much work in that regard. Oh, sure. That makes sense. Um, but speaking of that, special effects were done by Nicotero and Berger, um, the N and the B from KNB, but there was also a lot of CGI added in post, which we'll talk about in our review, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And I do not have an Ohio connection from Alex, but I do have an Ohio connection from myself. Oh, cool. What do you got? Uh, so the cinematographer, who was Peter Deming, uh, also worked on a lot of popular movies. He shot Evil Dead 2, a um, couple of Lynch Things, Lost, Highway, Mulholland Drive, all the episodes of the 2017 series Twin Peaks. He also shot Scream 2, Scream 3, and Scream 4, and the 1993 film Loaded Weapon 1, a spoof on the Lethal Weapon franchise, starring Samuel L. Jackson and Emilio Estevez. And from 1992 to 1994, Estevez was briefly married to Grammy Award-winning singer Paula Abdul. In 2017, it was announced that Paula Abdul would be touring for the first time in 25 years. The Total Package Tour, as it was called, also included New Kids on the Block and Boys to Men, and it kicked off on May 12, 2017 at the Shot and Scene Center in Columbus, Ohio. Oh, nice. That's awesome, man. I tried to fashion that one in uh, Alex's style. Yeah, yeah. You, you really got it. You did the music connection. You had like three to four connections in there uh, that maybe one or two of them might have been unnecessary and roundabout. But yeah, nice <laughs> <laughs> that was great. Thank you. Thank you. I got lucky. I stumbled upon that one pretty quickly. I gave this request to Alex a little bit late and today I started to realize it probably wouldn't happen and I, I threw that one together. Gotcha. Nice job. Are you a big Paul Abdul fan? Boy, I was back in the day when I was a kid. I thought the Opposites Attract song and video was about the greatest thing ever. Oh, cool, cool. Nice. And when I say Grammy Award winning singer, that was what she won a Grammy for. Um, I think that was like the best best video or something, best video short associated with a song or whatever they called it back then. Oh, cool. The Opposites Attract video with a cartoon cat. It's got a cartoon cat in it? It sure does. Wow. That's interesting. <laughs> uh, I got to check that out after this uh, episode. I don't, I don't think I know a single song of hers. Oh, man, you really should check that out. Rush? 
remember that one? It was kind of no. like a slow jam. The no. music video was kind of, I think it was about people racing cars and one of them dies. Damn, no. Does everything do with the band Rush? No, <laughs> it's quite the opposite of Rush's sound. Oh, okay. Uh, no, no, man. I, I, I need to dig into her. Check this out. Okay, man. Well, yeah, go watch the opposite detract video. It's a duet with her, and I don't understand. I don't know who the male singer was, but as far as the music video is con- concerned, the uh, the male singer is a cartoon cat. <laughs> All right. Damn, this sounds terrible, but uh, I can't can't wait to see it. Who I believe wears sunglasses. Yeah, you. I mean, anyone who doesn't know what I'm talking about should probably pause what you're doing and go check this out. <laughs> yeah, check this out right now. <laughs> All right, well, anything else, uh, or do you want to jump to the plot and uh, our review? Let's get into the plot and start spoiling some stuff. All right, sounds good. Hey, uh, before we do that, though, do you mind if we take a quick break? Uh, I'm just feeling a little bit unwell after dinner. I think it might just be some indigestion or something. Okay, God. All right, good luck, man. Yeah, call me back whenever uh, you're through with that. All right, cool. I'll be right back. Hey, man, sorry about that. I'm back. Yeah, how did everything work out? <laughs> oh, it was fine. You know, I, I, I just took a Tums, uh, drank a bunch of carbonated water, uh, and then I, like, burped, and uh, this fly came out, and now I feel a lot better. But um, now I've got this fly kind of buzzing around the room. Uh, you ever have that happen? That'll happen. Did you hear the uh, muffled buzzing as you were sitting in the room by yourself? <laughs> I did. I just assumed it was my phone, but apparently it was this fly in my stomach. <laughs> Uh, that's really disturbing in its own way. It is, it is. I, I love how they Something use Something about a fly is just so gross. It really is, and uh, and they use that, like, pr- uh, a few times in this movie, right? It's kind of like a recurring motif here. It is. The fly is almost like a harbinger of doom. Right, right. It works well. What are your top three worst bugs that you, would like, don't want to come across? Ooh, that's a hard one, man. I, I think being in the Midwest, uh, I would say, like, cockroaches, uh, spiders probably... And then, like, uh, maggots. Oh, maggots a good one. Yeah, that was super gross. Uh, what about you? Yeah, I'd probably say a cockroach, a maggot. Hmm. It's a tough one because, like, some spiders, I'm just like, oh, that's a little guy, and I'll, I'll take it outside. But if you get, like, a big, gnarly spider, then that's, like, a whole new oh, ball yeah. game. So, yeah, I'd probably put spider at number three. Yeah, and it's weird. Uh, do you think it's because we live in the Midwest that like we wouldn't put something like a scorpion or something potentially deadly on that list? Yeah, I mean, I don't think we're lucky enough that the... I mean, really, the most lethal bugs around us are probably spiders. Oh, yeah, right, right. Some of them are. Wolf spiders and uh, black widows are pretty intense, from what I understand. I don't know that they're lethal that often, but they can mess you up big time. Yeah, is it is it wolf or brown spider? I said wolf spider, but I'm wrong. It's not a wolf spider that can mess you up. It's a brown recluse, I believe. Ah, right, right, a brown recluse. Yeah, those yeah. look pretty gnarly. It can mess you up. I think so, yeah, or a black widow. Yeah, yeah. Have you uh, seen either of those around here? Yeah, I've seen... I don't think I've ever seen a brown recluse. I've seen someone who had been bitten by a brown recluse, and it was gnarly and disgusting. Oh, yeah, I bet. But we had a black widow that lived in our mailbox in North Carolina for a while. Holy shit, are you, are you serious? Did you uh, kill it or anything? I just tolerated it until it went away. I was too nervous to try to do anything, because that's when shit goes down. So did you just, like, not check your mail? I just was really careful every time I reached in there. <laughs> <laughs> that's brave. <laughs> Which was probably a bad idea. I probably should have just killed it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I'd, I'd be way too scared to be sticking my hand in there. Uh, all right, well, you want to jump into the plot of this movie? Let's do it. All right, uh, so this movie kicks off with uh, a flashback scene where we see a couple and their child, and they're showing up to this house, and they're uh, going there to see this medium because they believe something is haunting their child. They go inside this house, and uh, we also learn that the child has been uh, cursed by a gypsy after he stole something from her. Um, So it's kind of setting the stage for what's going to come later. Um, While they're in the house, they get attacked by this invisible force, and the kid is thrown from a balcony to the ground. The ground opens up, and these arms drag him into the ground. 
what did you think of this opening scene? Was this uh, effective, scary? What are your thoughts? I liked it. It was pretty quick and uh, efficient. I feel like it was only three or four minutes. Um, it, it set things up nicely. I wasn't blown away by it, but it was adequate. What did you think? Yeah, same. It was really quick. It was like in and out. And I also think another film might have dragged this out longer and made it a little bit more suspenseful and had it have it like build. But this one kind of came in within three minutes, uh, just kind of like uh, did did its stuff and like uh, kind of stayed at one level. Didn't really raise any heartbeats or anything. So I was, I was a little surprised, but it kind of set the tone for the rest of the film. That's true. Yeah, that's a fair criticism. Did the uh, CGI at this part uh, bother you? You know, yes, and I guess we'll just get to it now because it's going to be discussed. The CGI in this film was a little too much for my taste. I I feel like around the time, maybe it's just my imagination, but around this time, CGI use was really heavy, and I just don't think we had gotten quite sick of it yet or didn't know how to like successfully weave it into a movie without it being obnoxious. But it was a bit much to me in this movie in several moments of the film. But what did you think about it? I kind of agree, man. Uh, it was a little bit jarring. And uh, I, I just feel like the last few movies we've been seeing, either they're like great practical effects or it's like fall of CGI. And this is kind of like a weird uh, outlier where it's uh, like that 2000s era CGI that just like uh, really sticks out and kind of pulls you out of it for a minute. So I agree. It was a little distracting here. Yeah, and I mean, there are certain horror movies that are doing such outlandish things that they need a CG assist, and that's fine. But like you said, it wasn't really blended in that well to the rest of the movie. It was mm-hmm. just very obvious. Right, right. Yeah, it was. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know. I think the type of movie it was, um, you know, fortunately, I, I didn't feel like there was too much reliance on CGI, like, for most of the film. I just feel like there were a few scenes where it jumped out. Did, did you feel like it kind of carried through the, the whole film? I mean, the fact that they had Nicotero and Berger on here says that they were taking the practical stuff seriously, but that almost made it all the more surprising to me. I, I, It's not constant. Like, there are some things that you can tell were practical and that worked out well, but uh, still, with those two on board, I just, I'm surprised they used it as much as they did. Sure, sure, yeah. It feels unnecessary, but I also wonder if it was just like the 2000s. yeah. I guess so, but even so, when we go back to the 2000s, I don't quite remember it being so egregious. But, you know, he had come off, this is off Spider-Man and Spider-Man 2, where he was so used to using CG, I'm sure. And I think it's extra jarring, too, because he made his name with the Evil Dead, which was all practical. It had to be for the budget and the time period, but... Mm -hmm practical effects that they look dated and campy now but they're still really creative and really scrappy and then to go into this it's just a little bit of a slap in the face to a Raimi fan sure Uh, I know before we were talking about Sam Raimi and his unique style of humor do you think there's any chance here that he was purposely doing bad CGI uh, to be like funny or to be like over the top or just like, you know, to give this kind of like jarring humor here? Hmm. Good question. I'm tempted to say no, but... uh, <laughs> Just bad CGI. Yeah, yeah. I think it's just bad CGI. Sure, sure. Uh, so so then we jump to present day and we meet our main character. Uh, her name is Christine. She is a loan officer at a bank and she's trying to get this promotion, but she's got some stiff competition from a new guy. And her boss is kind of a dick, too, and he's always, like, telling her that she needs to step up and, like, uh, take more control. It just saying some, you know, pretty uh, blatantly, like, misogynistic uh, kind of stuff that just felt pretty gross. He, do you remember what, what he was saying to her exactly? Um, I can't remember exactly what he says. He says they like how aggressive Stu is. Ah, right, right. Yeah, that that's kind of uh, cringeworthy, right? It's, like, kind of, like say that to to someone like that yeah and i mean they like make her get them lunch so yeah it's certainly cringeworthy and that's all part of it like you're meant to really feel for her um they also open with her like listening to a video not a video a cassette tape in the car about diction and she's trying to get rid of her southern accent she walks by a bakery 
and is tempted and then like makes herself move forward so you can tell she's trying to eat healthy and she's trying to better herself and get this assistant manager position not saying that getting rid of your southern accent is bettering yourself southerners uh but you can tell she's really trying to succeed she's got a person in her past that she doesn't want to be anymore and she wants to make it in this world that she's in now and she's kind of getting shit on Wow, way to pick up on a lot of things. I I don't think I picked up on all that at this point, but yeah, the the sweet thing I know it definitely comes into play later. Uh, I, I must have missed it here, and then the the speech thing, yeah, where she's rehearsing in the car. Uh, I you know I, I didn't pick up on that. She had a southern accent in the beginning. She doesn't ever speak in a southern accent except for I believe one scene later in the film. Ah, okay, okay. When she's at a low point. Yeah, I really like how they, uh, this whole portrayal of her, like, uh, you, you can tell right off the bat that she's pretty vulnerable, um, that she's kind of, um, you know, in, in this job where she's trying to impress people, but she's got, like, kind of a lot of things going against her. So I, I, I like that. I think it's a, a good uh, piece of character development and uh, illustration there. Um, but yeah, her being in the state doesn't bode well for her next client that comes in, who is Mrs. Ganoush. Um, Mrs. Ganoush is this elderly client of the bank, and she's been missing her mortgage payments, and the house, the bank has come to kind of repossess her house. So she's uh, trying to beg Christine to give her some leniency, but Christine, trying to impress her boss and others, uh, denies Mrs. Ganoush the extension, and Mrs. Ganoush is dragged out of the bank by security after begging to uh, Christine. What did you think of this whole sequence and uh, the portrayal of Mrs. Ganoush? I really liked it. It was, I mean, a scenario that probably happens quite a bit. It's a woman who can't make her payments anymore. And we've been told to, I mean, we've been, we're admiring Christine until she's kind of a folksy, sweet person. But we can all kind of relate to why she did what she did, right? She's trying to... Not only is she just trying to get a leg up at the bank, but she's got to act on the bank's behalf. She's not just her own person in this moment. She's an agent of the bank, which to me is a cool aspect of the film. But when you mentioned at the top of the show about the mortgage crisis, I was just like, holy shit, because that really adds to this theme. And that's what kind of caused the crisis, right? Everyone's acting out of a very limited field of focus that is just, well, this is my job and someone else is going to take it from here or I can kind of put the responsibility on somebody else from here. Lenders were lending knowing that Wall Street was going to essentially buy the mortgage off of them anyway and turn into an investment. So Wall Street had an incentive for these loans to be made and the bank had an incentive. So everyone was just acting on their immediate interest at the time uh, knowing that they were a part of some entity that incentivized them to take this action. And I think we've all been in that position at one level of another, whether it's due to our employer or society in general, capitalism, whatever the reason, you make a decision that isn't necessarily your call because the buck doesn't stop with you. You're working on behalf of another organization. Um, so it's like a slightly selfish decision, but she also has a capitalistic justification because that's just kind of the way our society works. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, uh, there is kind of like the sense of people not wanting to take responsibility, us all being like cogs in the wheel. Um, yeah, no, that, that's true. But uh, yeah, watching the scene then, uh, you didn't feel like um, she was kind of being a, a dick, like you kind of sympathize with her more than Mrs. Ganoush? I did still sympathize with her, and they had done enough to make us like her. They also had a moment, I think that took place before this, where we meet Justin Long, and she found him a coin for his collection at the bank and gave it to him. Um, so also there's this book that I have not read about screenwriting, but it's a famous book called Save the Cat, where it, Save the Cat essentially means have your main character do something nice towards the beginning of the movie that endears the audience to him or her. Oh, okay. I think that's a save the cat moment there. <laughs> okay, like her her giving like 25 cents to, to her Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's not a big thing. It's, she didn't save a cat, but it's a sweet moment. 
Sure. Yeah, it's, <laughs> that's just a funny term, save the cat, since uh, there's a, a cat incident later in this film. Exactly. That's why I bring it up. <laughs> we'll get to it. Yeah, yeah, we'll talk about that soon. Um, so yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I feel conflicted because I, I think a part of it's yeah, you're, you're getting brought into her world and buying into her character and and the pressure she's under. But then you're also seeing that impact that it's having, and ultimately she's resulting in someone getting pushed out of their home and potentially making them homeless. So I don't know. You, you kind of wonder if if the movie's making some kind of commentary on how important we all might take ourselves, but in in our careers, but they're like these down the road impacts uh, and like realities that are happening that uh, are, are probably like bigger deals. So yeah, I feel, I feel like the, the movie was pointing to how she's trying to save herself, but also at the end of the day, um, maybe she's also done some harm to someone else. Right. And I think the counterpoint is, well, you can't just infinitely live in a house that you aren't paying for. Like, you know, you can't give out a free lunch to everybody just because you feel bad for them. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> Boy, I'm the dick in this episode. I know, oh, man. <laughs> Normally, you're the agent of, of capitalism. I know, I know. I thought that that's usually my role here. So glad to see the tables have turned finally. Indeed. So that evening, Christine gets attacked by Mrs. Ganoush while she's walking to her car in the parking garage. And we get this extended battle sequence, uh, which includes things from staplers to the head, uh, hair being pulled out, dentures popping out of the mouth, toothless biting, uh, a ruler being shoved into the back of someone's throat. At one point, Christine yells, I beat you, you old bitch. Uh, And this all ends with Mrs. Ganoush tearing a button off of Christine's jacket and putting a curse on it and then disappearing. Um, Brown, I, I, I thought this was a, a, a great scene. What did you think of this whole uh, sequence in the parking garage? I thought the parking garage scene was the highlight of the movie. <laughs> it really was. It was a lot of fun, right? Yeah, it's got a lot of suspense, and it's a little scary, and it's got some humor with the like ruler in the mouth and the dentures popping out and her just gnawing, like gumming her chin with all this drool. <laughs> and they've yeah. established Mrs. Ganoush is just kind of a gross-out character from the start because back when she was at the bank, she was like hacking up this orange, yellowish goop from her mouth into her handkerchief. <laughs> yeah, it was gross. The sound effects in this movie are especially disgusting. <laughs> oh, man, they stick with you. A good and bad movie for headphones. Yeah, yeah. Um, I thought it was great. And also this was a car that they they called it a puzzle car. It could have, it basically had certain parts of the car completely detached from the rest of the vehicle so that they could film a certain way from every which angle. Uh, so I thought it was really cool. It really was, man. And uh, I was just surprised, like, how long the scene went on for. It was like a good, like, five, six minutes. And uh, it stayed fresh the whole time. Like, they kept uh, doing new and, like, inventive things. So it never, like, felt stale or anything. And uh, just really well done and choreographed. And uh, almost like had had its own sense of silliness, like kind of slapstick violence, right? Yeah, it was. Right. Sam Raimi trademark. Exactly. Yep. So unfortunately, after this, uh, things start going south for Christine. She visits a fortune teller who informs her that there's this dark shadow now over her. And at home, she starts to see these uh, unseen forces. Kind of has like a shadow of a, of a goat and, and like the, the hooves of a goat. Um, at work, she like projectile uh, nosebleeds all over everyone. She fall, she swallows some fly at night. Uh, she goes back to the fortune teller and finds out that Mrs. Ganoush had placed a curse on her. And now this demon named Lamia is haunting her. And that in three days, she's going to get dragged to hell. So he tells her that the only way to maybe avoid this is by making a blood sacrifice to save, her hel- save herself. So what she ends up doing is murdering her cat, but it doesn't work that well. And I think this is what you're talking about, right? With the uh, save the cat idea? Yeah, I think they kind of play with... This whole thing is a play, a morality play, really, and they toy with Christine as a character doing good things and bad things and remaining likable even though she does a bad thing. So I don't necessarily think that was a mistake and that they had a very stereotypical save the cat moment at the beginning of the film and then had her literally kill her cat. (laughs) It's It's kind of like playing with how far can this person go to in their own self-interest before they're not a good person anymore. 
Right, right. And I, I thought that part was really clever because, like, uh, you go from one end where she's, like, telling someone, I can't kill my cat, I'm a vegetarian, to this scene where she's, like, brutally stabbing her cat. And it just kind of, like, puts her uh, in the, in this moral background, or, like, yeah, a morality background of if she's a good person or not. Did they show her? Well, okay, yeah. I was like, brutally stabs her cat? I guess they show her approaching with a knife. Yeah, but then she's got the knife and she's like stabbing up and down and there's like blood flying all over the place. Oh, I didn't see that in mine. Did you see the unrated version of this? I guess maybe I saw the rated version because this was a PG-13 movie, so. Oh, yeah, I must have seen the PG-14 version. Uh, But no, it's it's like very like tastefully done and uh, all you do is, all you see is like the knife just going up and down. So I I thought it was a a kind of a comical scene. Okay, shit, I got to be more careful about which version I'm renting. I know, I know. That always throws me for a loop. But uh, otherwise, um, what what did you think of these attacks that were happening to her in the house with like the invisible force? Uh, did you feel like a lot of those were very CGI heavy or anything? They're a little heavy on the CGI front. They still mostly kind of lean on just the s- uh, standard supernatural spookiness. Sure, sure. But the cgi didn't bother me there quite as much and i saw a lot of influence from the evil dead do you remember like the monster cam in evil dead when the demon is approaching and the camera is just moving really fast towards characters oh in the woods yeah you kind of might hear a wind sound effect and this demon kind of acts as this demonic wind a lot of the time so right i think he took some stuff out of the toolbox from the evil dead for this he had the camera kind of whip in really fast and spin around quickly. Mm-hmm. Right. It was essentially making just wind a villain, which seemed to be very The Evil Dead-esque. Oh, man, totally. Uh, yeah, there are definitely, like, uh, some really interesting camera work here. Uh, there was even, like, that scene with the fly where, like, it lands on the camera. Right. And, yeah, yeah, it's, it's so kind of, like, you know, bringing attention to the fact that, uh, that the camera's in the room, so kind of playing to that humor element. Uh, but then also, uh, yeah, very much like that monster view from Evil Dead. Very interesting. Yeah, and that fly landing on the camera lens is a good example of us talking before saying he kind of breaks the fourth wall, but not really. Right. I think yeah. it's safe to say if a fly lands on the camera lens, it probably breaks the fourth wall because that's the wall. But it's not like a character is literally speaking to the audience or winking at you. Yeah, yeah. But it's something and it. it kind of acknowledges the cameras there. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, speaking of the fly, uh, the next day she goes to a dinner uh, with um, Clay and to meet his parents. And while she's at the dinner, she sees an eye in her pie, and then she kind of burps out a fly. Uh, so it kind of makes a scene. So obviously, like the the the, the supernatural thing that's haunting her is still with her, and the the kitten didn't do it. Uh, did you like this whole sequence? I liked your little rhyme there, an eye in the pie and she burps out a fly. <laughs> I did actually like the scene with the parents because this was a tense moment for her. She had overheard Clay talking to his mom on the phone earlier and the mom was disappointed that he didn't marry more or he's not dating more within his social status. Instead, he's just dating this farm girl. So she was very self-conscious and worried about it. They're very uppity people, but it ends up going really well for her. Yeah, I, I thought this was a great like a character building scene where like we see what Christine's made of. She goes into that dinner. The parents don't like her like the mom doesn't, but she wins her over by like just being honest and being herself and like revealing that thing about her mother. So it's like really, really cool kind of like character transformation and like seeing the strength of uh, Christine on her own. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It develops her even more. Right, right. Uh, so then the fortune teller uh, tells her, okay, yeah, so the cat thing didn't work. Let's do the seance. So they go see that medium that the movie opened up with uh, that we saw in the beginning. And uh, during the seance, they conjure up the demon. And we get, I, I think, what probably one of the more higher budget uh, scenes here where uh, a bunch of ghosts are there. And then the demon emerges uh, and starts taunting Christine by possessing uh, some bodies in the room. Um the demon gets out of control, and before they can kill it, it's it's kind of attacking Christine. The medium is able to dispel the demon from the seance, but then immediately dies afterwards. So unfortunately, this doesn't remove the curse. Brian, what did you think of this scene? Um, any, any thoughts on this one? I actually feel like it wasn't very climactic. It was a, an interesting and fun scene. 
but I never really felt like Christine was in grave danger, at least not any more danger than she's already in, knowing that she's basically going to die in three days if they can't solve this. Sure, right. Uh, So it was a little lackluster to me. It's fun, but it plot-wise, it wasn't super significant to me. But what did you think? Uh, I agree. I mean, I don't think it was very scary at all, but uh, I feel like production value-wise, they kind of brought it in here with like the flashing lights, uh, the shaking camera. You had a a few ghosts popping up. Uh, You had the demon who was taunting her. And I I felt like that part really reminded me a lot of uh, Evil Dead, like what it was saying and how it was acting and and the whole dialogue there. Um, But yeah, not not necessarily a scary scene, but uh, I I thought like decent and and fun uh, effects and, and things like that. Agreed. Yeah. And that's where a little bit of the Raimi walk in the line between horror and comedy comes into play, where sometimes when he gets to, this wasn't a particularly campy scene, but sometimes he doesn't necessarily focus on making things scary. It's kind of like he's not even bothering, but that's kind of how I felt about Evil Dead 2. Yeah, that, that's what I was wondering, because I, I thought even with Evil Dead 2, it never really got scary. It was more kind of uh, creepy and weird, kind of funny. It's like a weird genre. Yeah, it's like all the trappings of scary movies are there, but it's not filmed or directed in a scary way. Like That right. doesn't seem to be the goal. Uh, almost purposely, right? Yeah, it seems to be purposeful. Right. Uh, so just to be clear, you didn't think the demon puking up the cat was uh, scary? No, I didn't. I forgot about that part. <laughs> Obviously, that's another kind of gross-out, silly, splat-stick type moment. Right, right. There's actually there's a lot of puking and hair-pulling uh, happening in this movie. Did you pick up on all of that? I did, yeah. And there's a lot of splat-stick stuff we haven't really touched on. Uh, she gets a nosebleed and sprays it into her boss's face. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she goes to check on the uh, Mrs. Ganoush and turns out it's Mrs. Ganoush's funeral and she accidentally falls on the body which leaks embalming fluid out of its mouth into Christine's mouth. Oh, God, yeah. There's several scenes like that that are just gross out, over the top, uh, kind of Evil Dead type stuff that I think really works and is a fun aspect of this movie. Yeah, right, right. Uh, speaking of fun aspects, in the version you saw, is there a scene where she goes to the garage in her backyard or something and runs into the ghost of Mrs. Ganoush and she has to kind of like drop an axe on her head? Yeah, and then that just forces Mrs. Ganoush's eyeballs to pop out into Christine's mouth. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, that was real random. And another scene where the CGI was too much. It was, yeah. It was pretty over the top there, uh, comedically so, though. Yeah, that's kind of like the brand in this movie. Uh, not very scary, but just trying to gross you out. Yeah. <laughs> Do some uh, funny effects, I guess. Uh, yeah. Right, more over-the-top gross out. She also had a dream where Mrs. Ganoush was in her bed and barfed like maggots and bugs into her mouth. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was gross. So finally, this fortune teller tells Christine that she can remove the curse by giving the cursed button on to someone else and therefore passing the curse uh, she decides to give it to the dead body of Mrs. Ganoush, uh, who is buried in a cemetery. She digs up the grave of Mrs. Ganoush, and uh, we get this long, torturous scene of her battling with this dead body while it's raining and it's all muddy, and she's like drowning in the in the grave. And finally, she jams this envelope into the button. Or, sorry, she she jams the envelope with the button into uh, Mrs. Ganoush's mouth and yells, "Choke on it, bitch!" Uh, what did you think? Did you enjoy this sequence? I do. I thought, I like the gothic imagery in the cemetery, and it felt like a climactic moment where she was finally going to get the better of this curse and, and be on her merry way as a success. Right, yeah. So it's a pretty emotional ride here. Yeah. And you can kind of sense their frustration and anger uh, as she's like trying to unload this uh, off on her. Even with any questionable morality that she pursues i'm on board with christine the whole movie interesting all right good to know so then the movie ends with christine thinking now that she's gotten rid of the curse and showing up at the train station to go on vacation with her boyfriend we get this funny speech from her where she's admitting finally that she could have given mrs ganoush the the extension and avoided this whole curse and everything but she chose not to 
and her boyfriend comforts her by saying, oh, Christine, you have such a good heart, uh, just to kind of like appease her guilt. However, he then reveals that he has the envelope with the button and that Christine must have mixed it up the night before, which means she never actually gave the button to Mrs. Grenouche as we currently, or as, as we previously thought. So she panics, and in this panics, she falls back into the tracks, and the movie ends with this train approaching her, and right before it hits her, the ground opens up, and these arms come out and drag her into the ground, and her boyfriend is there with this dumb expression looking at the button. Uh, what did you think of this ending? I like it in that it's kind of disturbing because since she fell right when the train was coming, everyone will just assume she was killed by the train and they couldn't find her body. And her boyfriend has to live with the reality that he saw her get taken into hell. Oh, sure, sure. You, th- you think that's why they coincided that uh, timing with the train coming? I don't know if that's why they did that or not, but I think it's a cool touch. It's a cool way to think about it for me. Yeah, I would assume even if a train ran over a body, you'd still expect to see things like uh, guts or like some blood on the tracks. Like, aren't people going to wonder why like there's no body parts anywhere? They certainly would wonder that, but they're just going to assume there's some reason for it other than her getting sucked into hell. (laughs) Yeah, something between getting sucked to hell and uh, getting hit by a train, I guess. (laughs) Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, But it is a bummer to see Christine go, but I kind of like that she did because we've been playing with the morality the entire time. And uh, even though I was on board with her, I think the point of the movie is that you've got to be responsible for your own decisions no matter what. Right, yeah. I thought that last speech of hers, uh, going back to what you were saying about her morality and you being on board with her, I think there's this uh, term called a white fragility where uh, she's trying to come to the realization that she yeah. did the wrong thing, but also trying to justify it. And then her boyfriend's there, like, encouraging her, saying, no, no, uh, no, you're, you're such a great person, uh, just kind of helping her cope with it. Sure, right? We, she considers herself a good person. The people around her consider her right. to be a good person, but maybe she's not really. Exactly. Maybe we all just tell ourselves that. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I feel like she goes to bed thinking, I'm a vegetarian I'm not eating cookies. I've made it this far up this corporate ladder, and this is all making me like this really good person. And then society kind of mimics that and, and tries to reinforce some of that. Uh, but at the end of the day, you got someone who uh, has been kicked out of their home, and they put a curse on you, and now you're going to die pretty much. <laughs> Them's the breaks. Yeah, I like that theme, and I like the idea of kind of examining yourself through a different lens and saying, am I really this thing I think I am, whether it be a good person or an environmentalist or an optimist, whatever you think you are, just kind of checking that and and seeing if you're still on track. Mm -hmm. Maybe you once were and you've gone off the rails or maybe you never were, but I, I like the theme. I really enjoy the theme and I like that it's with the character who... It sounds like maybe I was on board with her and maybe you weren't. So I Mm -hmm. think it's a really well-written movie in that she's not necessarily this obvious hero. But she's not necessarily an obvious villain either. Like, you're tempted to be on board with her. And in the history of filmmaking and how characters are depicted, she's this sweet little blonde white woman, of course, generally audiences will probably be on board with her. Um, mm-hmm. And still, you can say, like, hey, guys, you're going too hard on her. She, This woman, they had already given the woman two extensions on her mortgage. That's just, those are the breaks. But right. I think that makes it interesting. Are those the breaks? She did have one more opportunity to extend her loan. So it, it's cool. I like the moral conundrums here. Yeah, I, I really like that, too. Like, it's not so black and white. There's a gray area here. Um, I, yeah, I love the fact that she's like this complex and flawed character in it. I think it just makes her feel more real and uh, relatable. Uh, and, it, you know, throughout this whole movie, she's dealing with these like tough decisions. And there are things that uh, she does that have these kind of crazy consequences. But at the end of the day, like, yeah, as a, as a viewer, you don't walk away thinking, oh, yeah, she was a good or, or bad person. She's just like someone who's trying to make uh, the best decision as she goes along. Uh, I, I think it's telling at the end where like she has that option to give the button to like her nemesis. Uh, who was uh, her coworker? 
uh, but then she decides not to and tries to find this loophole and give it to this dead person inside. So that, that, that part kind of seemed like uh, her coming to terms and maybe some character arc there, but it's a very realistic portrayal of people and their perception of themselves. Yeah, and in that scene where she's going to give it to Stu and he ends up crying and she can't go through with it, she has him meet her at a restaurant and she's ordering a second dessert at the restaurant. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> Going back on kind of that flaw they set up for her at the beginning. And the server is kind of assassin her a little bit. And then she has a confrontation with the server and her southern accent comes back oh, in that right. specific moment. Sure, right. So there she is like falling back on both of the things they had set her up as trying to surpass right wow that's really cool I, I love that they had this character that that had that dynamic of someone trying to surpass or get, get ahead of their past but still struggling with the pressures on them at the center of this film uh, it just makes for like such a real character and uh such a great like story arc uh, as, as she goes through uh, all the decisions that she makes yeah and then you could kind of take the morality here of and apply it to her past as well. Like, hey, you're trying to move up and be this person you think you want to be, but it's the wrong path for you. And you don't have to get rid of your Southern accent either. And you don't have to be so careful about what you eat. Like who you are mm-hmm. was important and you've lost something. Exactly. Do you, you think there was uh, some commentary uh, about society and like characters like her boyfriend or boss, how they were trying to like, kind of restrict her, like kind of pigeonhole into pigeonhole her into like what she was supposed to be? Um, and like, uh, based on social norms or I don't know, what do you, what do you think? Sure. I think it could be a commentary about capitalism or about anything really about losing yourself because of your surroundings, either the people you are surrounded by or just the lifestyle you lead or the profession that you, uh, <laughs> profess <laughs> the profession, <laughs> your profession, yeah. Uh, So, yeah, it's really interesting. I think this seems like a very simple, fun, gross-out ride, but there's a lot to make you think in it. There really is, surprisingly, and I feel like it has some layers and interesting commentary. Um, So, yeah, that that was surprising. But, yeah, what was your overall take on the film? I really like the film in general, largely and solely based on Christine as a strong and complicated character, but also, like we said, the splat stick type stuff, the gross out moments, those were a lot of fun to me. This woman gumming her chin in the car and <laughs> spinning bile into her mouth. Yeah. It's gross, but it's done in a lot of fun. Like I I think that type of movie is fun to me. Um it is interesting to see some of Sam Raimi's evil dead tricks couched in a more conventional film, like the splat stick humor and the over-the-top elements, but a lot of similar camera work, too. Uh, like, mm-hmm. super fast whip pans where the camera moves from one part of the scene to the other horizontally, and it you get, like, blurred vision when it goes between subject one and subject two. Right. A lot of kind of slightly off angles and camera positioning that made The Evil Dead such a manic and crazy ride. But it was done in a more toned-down way for kind of a more mainstream movie. But he still packed some of that stuff in there, which was fun to see as a fan of The Evil Dead. Sure, right. On that note, as a fan of The Evil Dead, I wanted more practical effects. And even though they were there, they were kind of outshined by some of this crappy CG. Uh, yeah, I know, man. You, you definitely don't walk away from this one feeling like the effects are super great uh, or like you saw something really cool. And it, it sucks that it kind of ends with that last scene that's like super CG heavy with her on the tracks. Yeah, it is an unfortunate way to end. And then her face kind of like melts and becomes skeletal. And that was CG too. And it just seemed like there could have been a way to do that, at least that part practically, even if mm-hmm. you're going to have the hellscape behind her to be digital. Right. Yeah, that, that was a real disappointment. Um, and I'm shocked that Ron, like Sam Raimi, uh, as someone who's like relied so heavily on practical effects uh, historically, is suddenly like embracing uh, CG so much in, in this film. Uh, it's kind of a shock. Right. Yeah, I think after Spider-Man, he just probably realized how useful it was. And it is useful, and I'm not totally against it, but it was a little over the top. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Right. Overused. Yeah, it was. All of us fumbling around with technology back in the 2000s thinking it was uh, cooler than it actually was probably. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, what did you think of the movie? Uh, no, I, I agree with all your critiques. Like this, this is so much fun, and yeah, it's it's a more like digestible Evil Dead to me. Like you're you're bringing it into like a modern sense. You have like a more cohesive, like interesting storyline that isn't just taking place in one setting. And you've got a character you can really bond with and follow. And she's got like enough quirks about her or like uh, flaws to her character that like you really buy into her and believe her and like are, are along the way with her. And uh, yeah, some of those sequences, like the parking garage, um, the seances, and like some of the dialogue that emerges uh, during those sequences, I, I think just like create so much great character depth. Uh, I I would have loved it if they had gone into the R territory and maybe amped up uh, a little bit of the gore, just like you know, be more over the top a little bit um, with the practical effects. And then uh, part of me wonders like what more of like if they had built up more suspense or been a little bit more uh, heavy on the horror, uh, if they could have done that with like still keeping a similar tone, or if that just like would have completely taken the movie off its uh, course. What, what do you think? Do, we, do you think there's a way to actually make this scary? I think there is an even better movie that could have been made with those two things you just said. Make it an R and lean more into the scares. I think those could complement each other. And the existing splat stick could just be complemented by some blood splat stick instead of just right. goop and bile and barf yeah. and stuff like that, bugs. Oh, no, totally, yeah. A little bit more diversity on the special effects. Yeah, let's get a little more li- liquid diversity. Right, yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, I agree with that. I, I'm not like pissed that it's PG-13 and backed away from the gore, but I do think there was, it could have been improved possibly by that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it could have helped for sure. Um, one other weakness I'd mention is it got slightly tedious to me, even though I really like the movie and think it's fun. I don't think in the second act there was enough of a big twist or development that really upped the ante. And I don't think there was ever a moment in the third act where I thought that Christine's life or anyone I cared about's life was more on the line than it had been for the entire movie with these this three-day curse upon her. Mm, yeah, sure. So it just kind of started to get slightly monotonous. Yeah, I was definitely feeling that uh, towards the graveyard scene, like uh, her battling that corpse and drowning in the water. Um, I, I And I don't know, I'd like, do, you, do you feel like some of the uh, suspense was gone because you'd seen this before and this was like a second watch so you knew it was going to happen? That's the difficult part. This is a rewatch and I know how it ends. So yeah, there might be a little bit of that going on. I, I remember coming out of the theater really liking this, but I don't think I gave it a zero to five score at that point, and I don't know what it would have been. Yeah, sure. So it's hard to say how much of that is knowing the ending. and, and mm-hmm. Not that I'm ready to get there, but yeah, the, the ups and downs don't feel as up and downy once you know the ending, of course. I know. <laughs> yeah, the ending is kind of a downer, and you're prepping for it the, the whole time while you're watching it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but, you know, overall, I think you make a really good point with the seance. Uh, Like, that could have been a lot more interesting and dragged out longer. I I don't feel like you needed that scene and the graveyard scene. Like, you could have had one of those and and just, like, made it bigger or more suspenseful. Um, Because, I mean, they kind of mimic themselves. There's a big event that's happening, and she thinks she's in the clear, but she's clearly not. And uh, the fact they did this, like, two or three times throughout the movie uh, got a little bit uh, repetitive for me. So, yeah, the the end... uh, yeah, I was, I, was, I was kind of getting tired. Sure, yeah. Yeah, they were both... It was basically plot-wise accomplishing the same thing each time. That's right. fair. Right, yeah, yeah. You think you're in the clear, but nope, you're not. Right, which isn't uncommon. You know, the, we've talked about the whole good news, bad news element of storytelling and script writing, especially in action movies, but sure. it seemed like the stakes weren't any higher either time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It didn't really add anything. Um, what about acting, music, choreography, anything to mention there? Uh, I just enjoyed all that. Nothing stand out to mention, but I thought that was all solid. Yeah, yeah, same. Uh, actually, you know, one thing that popped out to me was that yellow dress that she wore. I I thought that was a great choice for that dinner and really popped. (laughs) (laughs) Good, man. I'm glad you mentioned clothes again. (laughs) You're on some sort of a streak. I gotta stay consistent. Uh, that didn't like visually, uh, pop to you? It did. It was a great dress. Yeah, yeah. It I don't popped know. for clay as well. Yeah, it did. <laughs> I don't know if that factors into the cinematography or anything. Uh, and I also love the score at the end where, like, the strings are, like, on the up and it's, like, rising as you see her boyfriend's uh, face uh, as she's getting run over and dragged into hell. Yeah, yeah. You know, you make a point about the yellow dress. It's a really vivid movie, like, looking back on it through my mind's eye. 
there is actually like a good use of colors and uh, I think earlier too she's wearing yellow pants as well so I don't, I don't know how that factors in cinematography but good job with the lighting and, and the colors overall yeah I mean cinematography editing all, all top notch all big names working on this so right. it's a really well produced movie it was it was uh, alright you want to jump to the rating then let's do it alright uh, how about 0 to 5 envelopes in the mouth of a corpse how many would you give this one I give it four out of five envelopes in the mouth of a corpse. A lot of fun, but it's got those downsides that we mentioned. The biggest ones for me, the CGI and the uh, lack of any significant course changes throughout the plot. Sure. How about you? Yeah, no, I'm pretty close. I had four and a half envelopes in the mouth of a corpse. Uh, I, I agree with like all the strengths and weaknesses you said, but overall it just feels like a very strong and, and fun watch, and uh, that seems hard and hard to come by these days. Agreed, man. It's a strong, strong movie. It's, it really I is. remembered it as being a lot of fun, but on this watch, not only is it a lot of fun, but I think there's more depth to it than appears on first watch. I know, I know, and I and I love that. Uh, I feel like it's it's always cool when you can rewatch a movie and you, you see more things in it. So it's great. Uh, you got anything else? That's it. All right. Well, that's gonna wrap up our review of Drag Me to Hell. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode. Please leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. That's going to help other people find a show. And we always appreciate the feedback. If you want to join the discussion, you can find their social links on horrormovieclub.com or you can shoot us an email at podcast at horrormovieclub.com. We'll be announcing next week's movie on Facebook and Twitter in case you want to watch it before the next episode. We're also on Discord where we're chatting up with some other listeners and horror fans. You can find the link to that on our website. Our logo is by MMA Pop Art, so check her out on Etsy.com. And until next time, if an old woman asks you to help her out, maybe consider doing so, unless you enjoy the feeling of someone else's bodily fluids uh, coming up all over you. Which, yeah, I mean, I guess some people do, right?